Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now for something a small bit different. There's a huge amount of lip service in this country paid to the arts, but what is it like to earn a living in the sector, and particularly in one of the disciplines that does not have mass appeal, yet is an integral part of our culture? Gavin Ring is one of Ireland's foremost opera singers, and apart from being a renowned singer, I would think that he's well able to talk as well, which makes him an ideal interviewee for this podcast. Gavin, you're very welcome. Thanks very much, Mick. Delighted to be here. Gavin, professional singer. I'm sure you've a very varied life and lifestyle being a performer, as is the way with any performer. But I'm just curious, for instance, say, take even this week, how would you be spending your week? Well, um, so in between shows and things like that, uh, I'd be pretty proactive in the sense that uh, I'm always at something. My poor wife knows that all too well. Um, But interestingly enough, um, I'm doing something at the moment uh, with regard to your namesake Sigerson Clifford who is the the great poet from Carsevine so I'm organising a, a a homecoming concert as it were on the 16th of October down in Carsevine uh, of a new cycle of songs composed to the poetry of Sigerson Clifford so I'm sort of I'm I'm performing in it but I'm also the administrator of the project and the project manager so I'm doing a whole pile of that um, that's basically what takes up my time in between performances obviously like you know when you do a contract like the one I'm doing at the moment, say I'm in the United Kingdom at the moment, I'm doing La Traviata by Verdi, and uh, you spend five or six weeks rehearsing, and then you do maybe two or three months of shows. Uh, but you get a good bit of downtime in between, and in that downtime, I always try and put it to good good use, and it generally involves organising some kind of a performance or some kind of a project back home in Ireland. And so that's what I'm doing at the moment. So it is... Uh, Tis gung ho, selling tickets, doing marketing, you know, talking to uh, people in the media, putting up social media posts, and and uh, and of course learning the repertoire as well that I have to sing on the night. Like, but uh, I like to be kept busy. To be honest with you, like uh, my grandmother, my late grandmother Claire Ring used to always say, "The devil makes work for idle hands." Like, you know, so and the devil does be fairly active when my hands are idle. So <laughs> I uh, I like to keep things uh, tipping over, you know. That's very good. Yeah, as you say, like you're not just singing, but you devise projects that would keep you busy. I saw somewhere else, Gavin, you did something in relation to uh, another uh, of your Tonys and, and Sigerson Clifford, as you said, from Carcine, but you, you did something in relation to Daniel O'Connell at one stage as well. Yeah, so um, this time last year, actually, um, I was involved in a very exciting project uh, with the Daniel O'Connell Summer School and with the Skellig 618 distillery down in Carcine. Um so obviously the legacy of O'Connell is uh, based around this idea of emancipation and of liberation. He's a great liberator, as it were. And uh, I always had this idea of like constructing a program of classical music uh, from O'Connell's era. And O'Connell, I suppose, was he was alive around, you know, I suppose, arguably the greatest period of classical music, by say, let's say from the time that he was born up until his death. You're talking about... Um, some of the titans of the classical musical era, Mozart, Verdi, Beethoven, 
And uh, and uh, I suppose as well in terms of what happened to classical music in that period, it was a sort of a revolution itself. Uh, it went from a kind of a fairly static, kind of very austere kind of, uh, I suppose, format or very sort of strict format, let's say, with the classical era with the likes of Haydn and Mozart. And then Beethoven came along and basically he was like the, he was like the Beatles of classical music. He just kind of ripped, he just ripped up the script and, uh, and, and transformed uh, classical music then let's say, and, 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 and I suppose the romantic era of classical music began with him. Um, so from that point of view, it's kind of like, I mean, culturally, it's a terribly interesting time, O'Connell's, O'Connell's lifetime, uh, societally, culturally, and, and that sort of, you know, music is a, is a societal and cultural phenomenon, and obviously it does reflect society and culture at the time. And we brought in as well someone who I guess has been overlooked at the time, um, a woman by the name of Clara Schumann, who was uh, the, um, the wife of, of Robert Schumann. And uh, and we brought in some form music as well, uh, because uh, I suppose, like I say, history tends to overlook female composers, um, and her contribution was uh, was seismic, really, uh, to that period as well. So uh, yeah, that was really really cool. But I suppose it's all wrapped up in this, uh, in my kind of modus operandi, if you will, of uh, you know, no matter where my 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 head or my body might be, it might be at any given point on the globe. Um, but my heart is always kind of. Back home in Carcevine, back home in Kerry. And I always like to try and, you know, bring whatever particular skill set I have home and utilize it and and I suppose, you know, just give something back in some shape or form, you know. But it's uh and sure it's an excuse to get back to Carcevine as well. Ah, yeah. Yeah. I don't I never I never need too much of an excuse to get back there. Yeah, I can well imagine. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Tell me this. Um a performer like yourself, Gavin, COVID. How did you manage mm. through it? With great difficulty. <laughs> um, well, I tell you, like, I mean, you know, it's. I was just talking to some colleagues about this in my dressing room uh, during the other other guys who are playing roles in the opera that I'm that I'm singing in at the moment, and um, we're all kind of saying nobody really talks about COVID now anymore. Really, we're all kind of saying that we've kind of like you know brushed it under the carpet, and you just don't want to sort of really kind of go back into it. Like, but and I think it's probably because it was so traumatic in a way. Um, I mean, it was trauma. I mean, not not least, let's say, for you know, all those poor souls that passed away as a result of the bloody thing. Um, but obviously, from the arts industry point of view, I mean, it was. Uh, I think the first like the first six to mm. twelve months was like an enormous existential crisis because, particularly if you're self-employed and you've decided to, you know, um you've decided to become a freelance musician and that's what you are really I mean like you know opera singer sounds very glamorous and it can be from time to time but at the end of the day you're a, you're a freelance musician actually it's a very funny story I'll just tell this very quickly before I uh, get back onto the point but I remember um, just just alluding to that point mm. of the difference between an opera singer and a freelance musician <laughs> how the two can sometimes be uh, be obscured even though they're the same thing um, I remember when I was moving to the UK back in 2010 and uh, I was looking for some accommodation in Brighton and um, I rang up a letting agency and uh, they said, okay, yeah, sure, sure. What do you do for a living? What's your occupation? And I said, freelance musician. And they couldn't hang up the phone quicker. 
honest to God. And then my wife, Nicola, she says to me, she says, next crowd, you ring now, tell me you're an opera singer. So I did for the crack. <laughs> well, they might as well have rolled out the red carpet. It was hilarious, the difference. Like, you know, it was like, <laughs> I felt like I was being, you know, they were going to show me the biggest <laughs> penthouses in Brighton, which of course I couldn't afford for, for, for love and her money. Like, but it's just amazing, like yeah, how perception yeah, yeah, exactly. foreign people's opinion of these yeah. things. But anyway, yeah, so like, the, the existential crisis was was pretty because you, you kind of felt oh god almighty have I have I sort of have I put my money on the wrong horse because have I sort of because all the decisions that you've made up until that point now your industry is to all intents and purposes been completely obliterated by the pandemic you're kind of going oh my god what I, I've 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 basically every decision I've made has been the wrong decision you know and that's and of course like I've I've uh, I've three kids uh we you know mortgages and bills and everything like that and you're kind of going oh my god am i what am i going to do and i kind of reached out to everybody and anybody and i was like will you give me a job will you do, do you know believe it or not i actually applied for the position of the press secretary of the social democrats <laughs> i saw it i <laughs> saw it line, yeah. and i saw the sort of criteria and i said to myself Actually, do you know what? I could probably do that job pretty well. Like, I'm good at all these sort of things. I'm good at public speaking. I'm good at communicating. I'm good at writing. Like, I, I, I have a fairly sort of sound kind of political, you know, philosophy, which is, you know, pretty, pre- pretty much a kind of a social democratic uh, kind of uh, orientation, as it were. So I said, you know, I could probably do that job right. Of course, I didn't even get near it. Like, but I was so desperate. I applied for, I applied for about, I applied for jobs in insurance. I applied for apprenticeships. I applied, I applied for everything. Now, the one good thing that I had in my favour, I suppose, is I trained to be a primary school teacher, and of course, I was applying for jobs in that regard as well. But what I didn't realise at the time when I was applying for these jobs was that um, uh, the primary school teaching system, let's say, has changed to the point that it's all panels now, basically. And if you're if you're newly qualified or whatever you are, you're let's say you you want to be a sub or whatever it is, you get onto these panels and the uh, or or whatever it is, and like basically, you get the jobs according to the to to how long you've been on that panel. It's a kind of a seniority type thing. Um, I'm not actually quite sure how it works, but that was the general gist of it because I applied for about oh, I'd say thirty plus teaching jobs around County Loud, and I wasn't getting any re- replies whatsoever. Um, but anyway, by the time that sort of September 2020 came along, uh, I started. I was registered with the Teaching Council, and they actually set up a WhatsApp group in the Cooley area where I was living at the time. And um, with all the principals in it And they would just Let's say if there was a sub needed that day They would put it up in the WhatsApp group And let's say it was kind of a first Come first serve basis Because I suppose Teachers were kind of dropping like flies as well With COVID and everything else That they just needed somebody in there fast So I ended up actually I ended up teaching for about um, I suppose about three months At the beginning of that year Full time basically I was in I was in a school And uh, so I was back back at It was the only time I ever stepped into a primary school Like I qualified in 2008 and uh, it took a it took a pandemic basically for me to go to actually go into the profession properly, you know. But it was lovely. It was great, and it sort of gave me my confidence back in a way because up until that point, I was on the PUP, and I was sort of I was I, I like I say I was feeling that 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 existential weight, like. And um, then slowly but surely, kind of you know, it isn't often you'd be giving praise to the government as an artist, but I have to say, like it, with Catherine Martin as minister in particular. I think she really recognised, number one, how vital artists and the arts are to a particular socioeconomic and sociocultural uh, matrix. But also, um, you know, she she was acutely aware of the contribution that the individual artists within that matrix uh, 
uh, of how important it is. And uh, and I think that there was good lobbying in particular uh, by the National Campaign for the Arts Group. They were absolutely tremendous in sort of highlighting viscerally how important the arts and culture are to our society. And I think that sort of, that, that led a charge then for the government basically to put their money where their mouth was and uh, introduce a range of supports, increase supports, increase the Arts Council funding um, and, and, and I suppose just allow, allow artists some kind of wish of some kind of out to be able to sort of do things differently, be it digitally, let's say streaming, films and of course the COVID care series as well which was funded by Creative Ireland uh, where you know musicians went to care homes in around the country and 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 so like we found another way now it wasn't the same but it was it was it was it was an out for us and uh, and of course like let's say companies like Irish National Opera with whom I would be closely associated they were given let's say let's say allocated funding to do a lot of digital work a lot of we made a couple of films let's say we had operas composed for us we did stuff online we we as I say no it wasn't full time I was still teaching I taught in the primary school pretty much all the way through 2020 into 2021 and I I was able to punctuate my existence as a teacher with um with with doing digital things and 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 suppose you know work in 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 the other ways as it were and uh but it was uh it was it was a roller coaster like you just start to find yourself going from day to day in a way that you'd never done before you had to think on your feet you really had to do with wits about you and you really couldn't let any opportunity pass you by you basically had to if there was hay to be made you bloody well made it and um and i think that uh Actually, all in all, I mean, we probably all could have been doing without the pandemic, everybody in the country. But I think from the arts point of view, I think it definitely gave the arts a chance. And I suppose we were given the chance to show our true worth and our true value. Because I think I think an awful lot of aspects of how we coped during the pandemic as a society would have been sorely lacking if the arts weren't given the platform that they were eventually given, say, let's say, 68 months in, you know. As you say... The pandemic was terrible in, in right across society, but there were particular aspects of it that really impacted on particular sectors. And as you, as you said, particularly the performing arts, no doubt about that. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Tell me, you're, you're from the same neck of the woods myself, you mentioned Carsevine, and I think to be fair to say, as Miola Murherty might put it, that it's not an opera stronghold. So where did the passion come from? Well, I suppose personally speaking, it came from my family. So my 
grandmother Claire, who I'm sure you knew, um, she was big into it, like. And uh, when she was, um, she used to work in the civil service in Dublin during the 1950s. And uh, she used to go to the opera regularly there whenever she'd stump up, be able to stump up the few quid to be able to go. And she was also in the Radio Air and Singers, which is sort of the, I suppose, the equivalent of the RT Philharmonic Choir now, you know. Um, so she always had a kind of a natural interest and aptitude. She loved the singing voice herself and uh, she taught herself the piano and stuff like that. Like, you know, I mean, not any major standard or anything, but she could... She had like she she taught herself a, a kind of a set repertoire of stuff that she was able to play herself, like you know, and so she was very very into it, like, and she'd play classical music for me when I was younger a lot, and she'd, um, in fact, she used to have a she used to have kind of a party. She used to get me to do a party trick, so she had me kind of um, memorize what Swan Lake was by Tchaikovsky and what um, uh, the Four Seasons uh, sounded like by Vivaldi, uh, and so like. Uh, you know, somebody come over to the house and she'd say, um, oh, you must say, G- Gavin's very good at recognising composers. <laughs> so, she, of course, this was rehearsed now, like, within an inch of its life, you know. Um, so she'd put on the CD or whatever, like, and she'd say, Gavin, what composer is that? And, of course, I'd maybe three or four years old. I was like, that's Swan Lake by Tchaikovsky, Nana. And, of course, they were very impressed by that, of course, and uh, she was delighted. But th- <laughs> it, it was kind of, I suppose, that's a, it's, it, it kind of points in the direction that it was always, it was always there in the ether, like, but... My family was always very interested in music, even my mother as well. Like my mother has such a broad, eclectic taste in music, and she was always playing music in the car as well. And like a sort of, I I guess you know more than I would say more than most people. Like just I suppose an appreciation of and an interest in music and artists and singers in particular was always something that was very very prevalent in my childhood. So I suppose that's where it came from. But I do remember like the first time I heard opera. I was like, what in the name of God is this? This is amazing. Mm. And I was just, I was kind of hooked from day one, like, you know, and it kind of just, it just, it just stayed with me. And I always wanted to, I always wanted to sing operatically. I remember, um, I remember going in for Scorn and Og uh, years ago now. And uh, I, uh, I got up in a way to sing. I was doing the solo singing competition or whatever, like, and of course everyone was singing their Chanot stuff, like, you know, so I decided I'm going to sing the Rose of Trelease if I was John McCormack. <laughs> Now, needless to say, I didn't win at all. Like, but I was just so I was just I was just obsessed with this idea of singing operatically. And then when I went to St. Finian's in Mullingar, I got the scholarship there for music. Um, I started getting my voice trained properly, and that's where I really kind of began to blossom. I guess you know. As you say, you got a scholarship to St. Finian's in Mullingar, and that that's renowned as a, a a music school in particular. So by that stage, you had some idea this was the direction you wanted to take your life. Oh yeah, I suppose so. I mean, like, I mean, what do you know when you're twelve or thirteen? Like, but I, I was always like music at that point. Like, was my forte, and it was something that I was, I was excelling at. And uh, and my mother, in fairness, her like she, she really picked up on that, and she said, "Well, you know, we only owe him really to kind of allow him to exploit this as best we can." And of course, Finians was known around the country as being a a fairly good centre of excellence in terms of training young fellas at the time um it's uh, co-educational now but in 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 my time it was uh, to a single sex but um yeah at giving young fellas a chance to really i suppose hone their craft like so yeah that was uh, I, I i suppose like when i was blowing carsevine like growing up like and in primary school and stuff like that and there was a good emphasis of music in ahatobred national school as well where i was and you know we the marching band for st patrick's day and we used to have willie larkin down from temple lenton to do traditional music with us and like there was a good there was there was 
there was a good music vibe and there always has been and it still continues to this day like down there and my sort of my, my childhood was just was just full full of music classical traditional the whole lot like it was it was a it was it was ideal really from a sort of a formative point of view like that but you know it's funny you talk about like me holomorotic saying that carcerine is not an operatic stronghold would you believe it mick the very first gaelic opera so the very first opera composed in the irish language was composed by a fellow from carcerine a guy called thomas o'brien butler and he was of let's say the butler stock of waterville but his branch of the family had moved in to Carsevine and they used to, they, they, their, their setup was there uh, where the credit union is now across from Jeffrey Connor's pharmacy and they, had, they, was, they, were, they were merchants and butter merchants and drapers and things like that. But this guy anyway, he went off, he was showed a bit of flair, he was educated in Fermoy, I think he was in the, in the boarding school there and he was, did a bit of, he sort of had a bit of a flair for it, he went off to London to study and he wrote this opera called Murgesh, which is based in Waterville and uh, is kind of a mishmash of Irish Celtic mythology and it's all sort of you know traditional music flowing through it and stuff like that like so so there's a there's a history there it's a I hidden history it's pretty, it's pretty latent but it's there <laughs> yeah yeah I oh, am yeah, no, in fairness definitely um, one thing I'd be curious about Gavin in St. Finian's where you went and presumably there would have been others of like mind to yourself in terms of music and that sort of thing off the top of your head did many of them end up being able to make a career in the arts in one form or another? Well, it's interesting you asked that question, actually, because I devoted my master's thesis to, let's say, the impact of the Scola Cantorum, which it's called in St. Finian's, on church music in Ireland. So the, the, so the scholarship was initially set up, you see, with the idea of training up church musicians. So in, let's say, the, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, you had uh, an influx of French and Belgian church musicians into Ireland it was part of the Sicilian movement which was a sort of reinvigoration of let's say Catholic church music in the 19th century early 20th century and uh, and the Vatican was had this idea of sort of I suppose they were like musical missionaries if you were so by the time that the 1950s and the 1960s rolled on these guys were all dying out so you had no so so in the major cathedral towns in the city um, you were going you were going to end up with an absence of choir directors and an absence of organists so the Catholic bishops got together and said, we have to do something about this. So they decided we'll set up this scholarship in Mullingar and we'll train up the church musicians of the future. And uh, um, I mean, an, an, an incredibly sort of worthwhile, incredibly forward thinking, incredibly progressive thing to, 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 to do, really. And of course, this was all to, to whoever, it was a scholarship, so to whoever got it, you got your boarding free of charge, you got all your lessons free of charge. It was a, it, it, a, a, really, good, a, a really good thing to do. And and the interesting thing was is I found let's say from my from from my own research from my masters that um, while they let's say put in place uh, a fairly robust educational grassroots policy with regard to Finians and let's say training up these new church musicians um, and let remember you take they take five on every year so you know you're five, five from 1970 onwards there's been five, five let's say five scholarship let's say alumni every year as it were. Um, the problem for the Catholic Church in that regard is that they didn't have the professional structures in place in order for right. these fellas to be able to sort of graduate into. So the idea of a professional church musician in the Catholic uh, in the Catholic tradition in Ireland is not as secure or as robust a concept yes. as, let's say, would be in uh, Church of England or Church of Ireland where there would be paid positions, professional positions for, let's say, church musicians. On, you know, and that they would be pretty... Uh, pretty numerous 
Uh, and so and so what happens is, I suppose, you get all these guys coming up through Finians through the years. They find, let's say, that maybe that they don't have the, they've got all the skills necessary to become a church musician, but the professional structure isn't there. So they naturally gravitate into um, other areas of the music industry, um, the more secular areas, as it were. And uh, and I think actually overall the 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 impact has been pretty profound. Uh, and I think where maybe let's say uh, they might where they mightn't been able to get into let's say uh, professional church music um, uh, structures or positions or whatever, the secular areas of uh, of music making in Ireland have absolutely benefited from that. Uh, and uh, and I mean like off the top of my head. Uh, even in terms of let's say the field of musicology, people like Harry White in particular, you know, renowned as one of the best musicologists, ac- music academics in the world. Um, someone like John O'Keefe, who's also from, who's from Port McGee, he's uh, there in Maynooth University. Oh, yeah. um, and the, the Synods, uh, noted arrangers and composers from um, from County Meath, um, the likes of Parico Quinnigan, professor of piano in um, uh, in TUD. Uh, so there's been a sort of a there's there's a, there's been a, a a fairly a fairly notable impact on the on the professional music scene in general in Ireland as a result of the work that has been done in Finians. That's interesting, John O'Keefe. That man you mentioned, he's from Port McGee, isn't he? That's right. Yeah, his mother taught me in primary school. It's mad how these things kind of are all connected, like. Yeah, I, I I came across him in primary school myself and the only thing I remember about the man is he was an absolutely terrific footballer. I didn't know anything about his music. He was a terrific, yeah. I, and do you know what this gas? Because I went up to, when I went up to Finian's first and I was in first year and there was a guy there, he's a priest by the name of Father Gaffney and he was in John's year uh, back in the 70s, I think. And uh, and he says, oh, is he say you're from South Kerry? He says, did you know John O'Keefe? And he says, he, says, he was a terrific footballer. <laughs> <laughs> so these things, these things really they hold do. sway, they you do. know. Anyway, uh, Gavin, you, you you completed your education there. You went on and you you qualified as a primary school teacher. As you say you got a master's. How did you break in, so to speak? How does one break into the opera circuit? That's a good question, I suppose. Um, I suppose there's there's more than one way to skin a cat when it comes to the thing, but. I guess I was very lucky because um, I started studying as a result of being in Finians and um, uh, let's say the, some of the connections that I made there and particularly with uh, a guy called Ronan McDonough who's an ex-scholar. Uh, he's an ex-guy from, from St. Finians. He's from, I think he's from Kilchima actually in County Mayo but he's a, a, a really prolific church music composer himself. And um, and himself and Jared Gillen, who was who was the organist and the professor uh, Emerson from um, from Minute, uh, I sang for them one night, and they said, "Oh, you know, there's a teacher in Dublin called Mary Brennan, and she's excellent, and you should probably go to her." So they set me up with her, and I started studying singing with her in my last year in St Finian's. So it was, it was I'd, I'd get the train up from Killarney, I'd go up to Dublin, I'd have my lesson with Mary. And then hop on the train to Mullingar and I'd be in Mullingar for the week then. So I was doing that regularly. So that that sort of, I suppose, in a way, got me into the Dublin scene then. And I started doing the Fesh Kjol as well um, out in Bosbridge. And I won a few competitions at that. And I suppose I started getting noticed. And I suppose and at that stage, really, I didn't really think I would be pursuing a full-time career. I always had it in my, my head that I would become a teacher because that would allow me to play football and do music as well. I'd be able to pursue other areas that I was interested in, along with my profession. And um, 
I think it was Mary, all right, at one stage, she put it into my head. She said, you know, you could probably make a go at this full time. And I kind of said, all right, fair enough. So as soon as I finished my teaching degree in St. Pat's, I went straight into a master's at the academy. No, I wasn't actually going to do it and, uh, straight away. I was going to wait. I was going to teach for a year and raise a few bob to be able to pay for the master's. But I got the Bank of Ireland Millennium Scholarship and that enabled me to pay for the master's then. And that allowed me to train full time, like really work intensively on my craft as an opera singer uh, with coaches and doing master classes. And I did a couple of roles in college as well. Like we did student productions of operas, like and really good quality ones now. Like, and we, like the director, I remember, of those student, student productions was a woman called Annalise Miskimmon. She's from Belfast, but she's now the head honcho. She's uh, chief artistic director of English National Opera in London. So she's, she was. She was sort of, she at the time she was the artistic director of Opera Theatre Company in Dublin and she was really making a name for herself there. So to have had her and I suppose the kind of the world that she was operating in then as well because she brought a couple of us on as young artists with Opera Theatre Company. We did some professional productions with them at the time and then you'd get the odd thing maybe with Opera Ireland who were in existence at the time and you'd get maybe the odd thing with Lyric Opera you do maybe a little bit with the orchestra, the National Symphony Orchestra, stuff like that. And actually, you know, when I was in Dublin, my sort of, I guess, my apprenticeship in Dublin, because that's what it is, actually. You you think, oh, you go off to university to study, be an opera singer. In name, yeah, and, and that's the facade of it. But it's actually an apprenticeship. You're studying and working at the same time. And you're doing little, little bits. You know, it's, it's kind of like... Uh, it's like, it's like being a mechanic or it's like being a plumber or anything like that. Like you're basically, you're you're learning on the job and that's the way that you do it. And actually, there's no substitute really for actually the amount that you actually learn when you're doing the job as opposed to being in college. But that's that's how it is. It is it's, an, it's an apprenticeship. And when I was in Dublin, I got fierce opportunities, like fierce opportunities, more so like by the time that I, I did a year at the National Opera Studio in London from 2012 to 2013, to sort of, I guess, spread my wings a bit and get involved in a major way, let's say, with the major UK companies. And, you know, all the guys that were inside there and the girls that were with me, they were just flabbergasted at the amount of experience that they actually amassed in Dublin in terms of being on stage with an orchestra and and, and, and all, let's say, the concerts and leader recitals that I would have done over the years as well. Um, so... Uh, so yeah, it's kind of a gradual process, I suppose, Mick. Like you kind of just you, 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 you. And as I say, I got the rub of the green. I was, I had the right people at the right time, and I was sort of just, I guess, slowly but surely made my way into the profession. And so, Kevin, and yeah, and as you say, you made your way in that respect. Is there a lot of travel involved? Did I see somewhere that you said prior to the pandemic around two thousand nineteen that you might have visited up to? 30 or 40 cities that year with work? Yeah, absolutely. It was crazy. Do you know the way Googlers following you everywhere you go nowadays and they send you the updates to tell you where you are and you're like, my God, was I there? I didn't realise I was there. But um, yeah, it was it was pretty manic now as well. And 2019 was my sort of, that was the fulcrum year in terms of transitioning from baritone to tenor. So I was a baritone for the first 10 years of my career. Tell me about that transition. Why do you transition and what is the difference, so to speak? Well, it, I suppose it's, it, it doesn't happen to everybody. Um, and I guess uh, when I, so for the first 10 years of my career, I was a baritone and a sort of a mid, mid-range singer. So in the male, male, the principal male categorizations of voice are tenor, highest, baritone in the middle and bass, lower. And I was a baritone and I, I was always maybe a slightly higher baritone 
So I was always kind of edging towards tenor, but I wasn't, nece- I wasn't necessarily at tenor. I then, in around my late 20s, early 30s, I began to sort of notice a big difference in my voice. Uh, it had definitely become easier to sing higher and it was becoming more difficult um, to sort of supply the same degree of resonance that you need when you're a, when you're an operatic baritone, and um, and that's quite that's quite that's quite congruent with um, let's say male vocal physiology anyway. In terms of let's say by the time you get your late twenties, early thirties, a definite sort of maturing or certainly the beginning of a process of maturation occurs. And uh, for me, the voice just went higher, so I had to respond to that, and that was kind of scary in a way because I had to sort of. I had all this work lined up as a baritone, but like, if you if you don't listen to your voice, if your voice is telling you something like that and something as fundamental as that, you ignore it at your peril, because if you start trying to force a particular sound on the voice to which it's not uh, naturally disposed to, you'll run into trouble down the line and you'll probably end, uh, run out of road as an opera singer. I presume part of that is. If, if, as you say, you, you you need to follow your voice in terms of becoming a tenor, is there some questions then in yourself? Can I be as successful as a tenor as I was as a baritone? Completely, yeah, yeah. And like again, you, I sort of, I in a way, I sort of had to put the blinkers on. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I suppose, because my teacher was fully supportive of it. Um, I studied with a guy called Robert Dean. He's one of the professors at the Guildhall School in London, and he really knows his stuff. Like, and he's really kind of knows particularly male voices like that. And and crucially as well, my agent, who is a really great woman, she's got her head screwed on, she knows voices very well as well. They were both kind of saying, this is the way to go. You, 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 we, we support you in this, essentially. So when you those kind of two kind of, I guess, fundamental people behind you, it kind of makes the leap of faith that little bit easier. But it is a leap of faith nonetheless. Um, but I suppose, look, you put a plan in place, you kind of do, you, I had to embark on a process of intensive retraining for about maybe six to eight months. Uh, and that training, when you become a tenor then, like that kind of training is ongoing because now I'm, I'm sort of, I'm still only really at the beginning. Pandemic got in the way big time as well, because I, I managed to sort of secure all these kind of developmentally appropriate sort of opportunities and, and work situations for me to be able to build, start again, as it were. And of course, they all got shoved to the side. Well, they got shoved to 2022 and 2023. And that's why I'm kind of starting again now, you know, which is which is kind of cool. But I do feel like I've sort of missed out on two and a half, three years of, of, of development, which is a bit of a pain in the backside. But look, I'm, I am I live to tell the tale, so I can't complain. Um, so many of my colleagues have fallen by the wayside and have not been able to get back into the business because of the pandemic. So I just feel very grateful that I'm sitting here in a position to be able to say, I'm actually all right, and I can, I can, I can, I can, I can walk away at this full time again, you know. And as I say, I got very lucky in that regard. But, but anyway, I mean, so yeah, you do, you do, sort of, you, you have to, you have to recalibrate and and kind of look at it differently. But it's, I, I, to be honest with you, I'm delighted I made the change. I'm thrilled to bits because my voice feels like it's in the right place. I feel like I'm doing the right thing. Don't get me wrong; it's still challenging, and there's a lot that I still have to learn, and there's a good bit of development to go a uh, good bit of road to travel there but it's uh, 
it's worthwhile. And as I say, I'm really enjoying it and finding it very, very worthwhile. But as you said, you have a young family and all. Um, that, of course, is another aspect of the performer's life that a lot of us forget at times. Like, as you said, there's the glamour side, but there's also the other side. Absolutely. Like, and at the end of the day, really, like, Jesus, I'd be nowhere without my family, really. And like with Nicola and the kids there, like, I'd be, I, I, I'm, in a way, I'm so glad that I, that I have them. I'm so grateful that I have them because it keeps you grounded. And my extended family as well. God, my, my, my mom, my sister and, and everyone else as well. Like, God almighty. But like, you know, you do, you do have to make a conscious decision in this racket to prioritize that part of yourself. And it comes at a financial cost, of course. But what what is a short-term financial cost is a long-term personal investment, if you know what I mean. So, like, because at the end of the day, you'll never get back those moments with your kids when they're growing up. You'll never get back those moments with your with your wife and with your family where you need to be able to say, look, I'm gonna I'm I'm going to make a priority of making sure that I get home as often as I possibly can. Myself and Nicola have had a rule. Uh, ever since because she's a singer herself as well um we've had a rule since we've uh, been together of no more than 12 days and it's never actually been more than 12 days it's generally only about five or six before i before let's say if we're away for a sort of a concerted period of time that we try and get back at least uh or yeah at least every 12 days and as i say it's it's it's, it's often a shorter period than that um ryanair has been very helpful in that regard <laughs> with, with the cheap fares but um but even still, like you, 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 yeah, I, I would try to, I would try my very, very best to uh, absolutely prioritize that part because I guess there are, there are artists out there uh, in my profession and across all professions who, who don't by choice or who may not be able to, but they might find themselves just not, not, not for whatever reason, not being able to do, to make those priority, those prioritizations. But wherever possible, I try to do that because as you say, like, you, if you if you neglect that part of yourself, like it's yeah. uh, it's not good. It's not good at all. And as a career itself, Gavin, is it something that realistically, you know, no more than the average artist of working life, that it's something you hope you could be able to do right through life? And do you develop further on from opera, or is that something that, as as you say, th- to that extent, you're living the dream career wise? Yeah, I mean, I suppose the, the the wonderful thing about being an opera singer is, and there are many, many wonderful things about being an opera singer. It's a you know, it's a great way to make a uh, make a living, and I I mean, it's it's so utterly uh, satisfying and 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 enriching, and I I I feel very 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 lucky to be able to do what I do for a living because, like you know, it's essentially, I mean, look, not there's a lot of technical sides to it as well, like, and you have to be on top of your craft and you're, you know, at the end of the day, you can't be messing around, like, you know, you have to know what you're doing. But as long as you sort of attend to those aspects of your, of your, of your, of your, your professional self, as it were, like, the, the processes then are a pure joy. Like, you get up on stage and you're playing these, you know, incredibly complex, sophisticated characters uh, from a whole range of, in a whole range of different contexts and situations, you know, uh, across, you know, different shades of the art form, right from, let's say, the 1600s up until modern day. So there's such a, there's, a, there's such a rich sort of repertoire there for you to start. And you'll never get through all of it. That's the, that's the beauty of it in a way. Like, you'll, 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 be your, you'll spend your life exploring the whole thing. And if you're lucky, you'll have enough 
there'll be there'll be a few companies there who will give you the chance to to really go in depth with these uh, with these roles and perform them, and uh, and so like from that point of view, I suppose like that's the that's the beauty of it that you you know you might spend a few years singing a certain amount of roles, and then you'll find that maybe that let's say the next few years you'll devote to another another set of roles depending on maybe how your voice matures as well because like let's say i i say okay i became a tenor but my voice my my voice will go through different stages of fluctuation and maturation as a tenor until let's say the end of my career but like god there was a fella there on nine he's an italian tenor let me try and find his name now but he, god he's he's 92 years old i saw a clip of him 92 on, on his name will come to me again now in a minute 92 and he's still absolutely glory in glorious form. Just and it's the thing about opera singing as well. It's the technique that you that you learn the, the in order to be able to sing opera. So like when you're singing opera, you have to have a solid control and and, and vocal technique because at the end of the day, you're singing out over sometimes 40, 50 piece orchestras. So you have to beat them basically in terms of volume. No, it's not. It's not a question of volume necessarily. At times, it's more about sort of the resonance that you create within your own the your own natural uh, physio- physiology, particularly in terms of your chest and your head. But anyway, that's another that's another podcast. Um, but like, so the way that you put that technique together, uh, assuming you do it right, you should be able to sing re- with reasonable proficiency operatically for most of your life. Because it's so, it's been. I mean, it's such a. I guess it's 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 such a craft. It's such a craft, and it's a craft that's been in the making now, like I say, since the sixteen hundreds. And you have had singers and teachers and pedagogues, theorizing, writing, coming up with new ideas, uh, innovating with regard to how to best produce the voice operatically now for centuries. So you've got this wealth of knowledge that you can apply to your own technique. That, like I say, if you do it right, you can keep going for as long as you want, or as long as as long as long as your body as long as your body, uh, you know, uh, allows you to. Fantastic, Gavin. Um, listen, it was great talking to you. Uh, great talking to you, Mick, and I'm I'm really happy, really happy we connected. The evening you're doing with the singers in Clifford Song, that's in is that in the Daniel O'Connell Memorial Church in Carsevine? That's right. Yeah. So 16th of October, 7 p.m. at the Daniel O'Connell Memorial Church in Carsevine. Um, this is a really, really cool project, which has been in the makings since 2020. So a composer by the name of Stephen McNiff, who is based in London, but he's of Irish parentage and he, he himself identifies as Irish. Um, he's, he was always kind of a big fan of my voice. And he says, I really want to write something for you. And I, without hesitation, I said, get yourself a copy of Ballads of a Bogman by Sigerson Clifford. I says, those poems are they're just ripe for operatic exploitation. They're just, they're just the the narrative, the ballad form, the imagery, the drama, the hyperbole. It's just fantastic, and obviously the history and the myth and the spirit of the of the of of the of of Iveran, South Kerry is just like it's just bubbling from it. So, uh, uh, so he got it. He fell in love with the poetry, and he wrote this forty-five minute song cycle uh, based on the poetry. Uh, of Sigurds and Clifford and they are just fantastic we got some funding from Chapman University in Los Angeles to actually workshop it and put it together and we did the, prim- the sort of world premiere of it as it were uh, back in uh, April in Los Angeles and then 
Uh, we went to Cork with it. So Sigerson Clifford was born in Cork. Bit my bit like myself. We have a parallel like that. I was born in Cork, raised in Carcassonne. Same with him. And uh, he, uh, we did a performance of it in St Finbar's Cathedral, which is across the road from Dean Street, where Sigerson was born. Spent the first three years of his life. And uh, and then lo and behold. I'm so grateful to Kerry County Council. They are, we, we're blessed, Mick, in Kerry, one of the best arts officers in the country in Kate Kennelly, because she put me in the direction of some funding that was coming up. And so we applied, we put in a really good application. We got funding from the Department of Tourism, Heritage, uh, Culture, uh, Sport Media to be able to uh, basically put on this, what I like to call a homecoming performance of this work, because it's so special and it evokes the spirit of Carsevine and Sigerson's sort of take on the area, particularly in the early 20th century and like, and dealing with all those, the revolutionary period and de- dealing with, let's say, the traveling community in Ireland and let's say, and let's say immigration, rural decline and the overall sort of feeling of kind of, you know, I guess, you know, um, that, that, that spirituality that is only the preserve of County Kerry and that Sigerson really actually I was talking to John Spillane recently about this and he said about Sigerson Clifford he said he says do you know I think I think the thing about it is with uh, with Sigerson is that like the lady that protests too much you know he's 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 overrigging the Kerry pudding something unreal, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't be the only one. I know, well <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um but uh, but then he went to, but then John went on to say that actually the whole Kerry Cork thing is a lot of nonsense because we were all the same tribe anyway. So look, uh, you know. Yeah, I should definitely, definitely. But yeah, so it's gonna be very special. So if anybody's listening and you wanna come down it, and it's going to be recorded by RT Lyric FM as well. So it'll be a really special night. Beautiful acoustic in the Daniel O'Connell Memorial Church. And tickets, tickets are going well. Should sell out, I would imagine. Fairly lively. So if you want to get a ticket, get on the bandwagon Great. now. Um, I'll put you in the spot. Would you give us one verse of the boys of Barnish Rider? Oh, listen. <laughs> yeah, I, I, no bother at all, Mick. All right, hold on now. Okay. Actually, I'll tell you a funny story about that before I, um, before, before I sing it. So I was, um, I was asked to sing at the Irish Embassy in London back in 2012. Um, Bobby McDonough, who I'm sure you, he's pretty prolific on Twitter. He was the ambassador at the time. And uh, it was a dinner in honour of Martin McGuinness and um, Peter Robinson, was it? Was he the DUP? DUP guy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the two of them were the guests of honour. And it was a whole kind of like sort of high poly of Irish people. So operating in London and the UK. So who was there? So you'd... Uh, Eamon Holmes was there, you had Barry McGuigan, you had uh, Liam Brady and David O'Leary and there was a whole gang of them and, and sure we were having, it was a nice dinner and stuff like that and, and uh, anyway he says, um, I, he said oh you sing a song for us, so I said oh, I'd sing the Meeting of the Waters, you yeah. know, a nice sort of, sort of thing to sort of, you know, in particular to denote the coming together of two opposing forces and, and you know, and harmony and peace and all that type of thing. And anyway, sure, the dinner went on anyway and sure the, the Guinness was flowing and the and the brandy was out and the whole lot and Bobby says, we'll have another song from Gavin there. <laughs> so I said, all right, so I'll give you the boys of Barnard every verse, including the Republican one. <laughs> well, Martin McGuinness, I'll never forget the grin on his face that night. He was beaming from ear to ear and he says, you know what, now I'll remember you. I'll remember you. <laughs> I don't think Peter Robinson was too happy, but uh, in fairness, he took—he absolutely took it in the spirit of the evening. And it was uh, actually Bobby said at the evening, and he says, "I think probably you know when the black and tans have been mentioned, it's probably a good time to bring the proceedings to an end." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Great here we stuff, go. I digress. Gavin, I digress.
O the town that limes the mountain and looks upon the sea. In sleeping time or waking time, tis there I long to be. To walk again that kindly street, the place my life began, with the boys of Barnashrada, who hunted for the ran. With cudgel stout we roamed about to hunt the Gedrolin. We searched for birds in every forest from Litter to Dunin. We sang for joy beneath the sky. Life held no print or plan, for we boys of Barnashrada who hunted for the ran. And when the hills were bleeding and rifles were aflame, to the rebel homes of Kerry the Saxon stranger came. But the men who dared the Oxies and who fought the black and tans were the boys of Barnashrada who hunted for the ran. So here's a toast to them tonight, the lads who laughed with me. By the groves of Carron River, to the slopes of Beanity. John Dolly and Bat and the Sheehan's Con and Dan, were the boys of Barnashrada who hunted for the ran. But now they toil on foreign soil where they have gone their way. Deep in the heart of London town, or over in Broadway. And I am left to sing their deeds, and praise them while I can. Those boys of Barnashrada, who hunted for the ran. And when the wheel of life runs down, and peace comes over me. Oh, lay me down in that old town between the hills and sea. I'll take my rest in those green fields, the place my life began, with the boys of Barnashrada who hunted for the ran. Shina Will. Gavin, I can retire happy now I've sneaked the boys of Barnashrod onto this podcast. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> There'll be a rebellion in Cork after that now. <laughs> Gavin, Gavin Rigg, thank you so much for joining us today. Not a bother, Mick. Thanks a million. Take you care, too. remind yourself. God bless. All the best. Uh, I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you, folks, for listening, and we'll be back again with you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.